0: Good morning. Good morning, it is great to see you this morning, and uh, I just want to uh, encourage you, if you were not present last week, uh, to go back and to listen to the message from last Sunday. Madison opened up our, our series last month, and we um, Preached an incredible message that really starts this series. Let my people go off correctly, and so I just want to encourage you to um, to grab onto that online, and uh, you can do it either through Facebook or you can do it right through our website. And uh, really, I know that it will bless you. And uh, it's always it's always great to be able to sit as a pastor. Um, once in a while, and let somebody else minister to you. And I'm really grateful for your life, Madison, as well as others that that can bring us the word from time to time like that. Um, We are going to talk about, the message that I have prepared is called Negotiating with the Enemy, and I want us to kind of get in this mind frame of, of the book of Exodus that we've been talking about this, this phrase, let my people go. Uh, but I want us to remember that <clears throat> generations before, um, before Moses came on the scene to utter those words, there was a man named Joseph, and and Joseph really played into this whole, this whole thing as well as others, but just, and he's one of my favorite characters, sold as a slave, um, he was falsely accused, he was forgotten, um, he found himself um, not only in slavery, but then in prison, and, and everywhere he went, um, God, he just did his best for God, and God used it, and he always, I'll never forget... Uh, the statement by one of my college professors, cream rises to the top. That was Joseph. Wherever he was, it doesn't matter how low it seemed, God always used him, and he always rose because of his character. And in while he was in prison, he interpreted the dreams of one of Pharaoh's um, um, guys, and, and that person was reinstated, and eventually they reminded Pharaoh of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. Pharaoh had a dream, and uh, Joseph was able to interpret it, and so... Pharaoh went from being a slave and a prisoner to being the number two in the land of Egypt and and was able to guide them through seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine and basically was responsible for rescuing not only Egypt because people came from all over the world because they knew that Egypt had food. And so, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's so much bigger than that. That, that when people ran out of their own food from the seven years of plenty, they came to buy food from uh, from not just Egypt, but from Joseph. And the Bible says that eventually they used up all their money to buy food, and Joseph was still selling food. Then Joseph began to buy up their property. That, that basically Pharaoh was the most powerful person in the known world because of this famine, because of what Joseph did, how he led them through it. And so um, we find themselves in this situation and Joseph's family were brought to Egypt. They came to Egypt because of the famine and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I want you to settle them in, in the part of Egypt called Goshen because it is the best that the land has to offer. What an incredible treatment that Joseph got. But that brings us now to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us, Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. What an incredible transformation. Okay, to go from being the people who, through your family, this nation and the world has been rescued, and now they are systematically oppressing you. They are, they're making a decision. Hey, these people, are they're, they're, they're populating so much that, that we've got to put them into forced labor. We've got to make them essentially slaves. So to go from saving the world to forced labor, uh, you, you, I ask myself my question, how could this have taken place? How could you go from the best to the oppressed in, in, in whatever period of time that really is? And, and I want to, uh, I want to just, get started here. And, and I'm going to make a, 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 I'm going to tell you about a, a little story in just a minute. So I want to give you this instruction. Don't be that frog. Okay. It'll make sense in just a moment. But Genesis chapter 15, God had hinted at these events years and years earlier. And so Genesis 15 verse 13, it says, then the Lord said to him, meaning Abraham Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God is talking about Egypt. He's talking about what is happening in Exodus chapter one. God is referring to that and it didn't happen overnight. You know, Madison last week was talking about the 430 years. And in some places in Scripture, we see 430 years. Some places, we see 400 years. Some people say, aha, the Bible has a mistake in it. But if you actually track all the way back and, 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 and this, this, I don't want to get deep in the weeds here, but this this actually goes goes so much further back just than Egypt and that's where the 430 versus 400 years comes and so we won't get into that today but but um, it didn't happen overnight. They didn't go uh, along the way and all of a sudden one day they became slaves. It's something that 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 happened bit and piece at a time. Genesis 47, 6, settle your father. This is back as they come into the land and Joseph is working for Pharaoh. Settle your father and your brother in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. This didn't happen overnight. Um, You have have Pharaoh, he, he loves Joseph and Joseph is rescuing his country And now this new Pharaoh years and years later comes and he meets with the midwives in Egypt, the women who deliver babies in Egypt. And they go to the home of the Hebrew women to deliver their babies. And and Pharaoh says, listen, when you go there, I want you, if they give birth to a boy, I want you to kill the child. How far we have come between those two times. It didn't happen just just in a moment. It didn't happen overnight. It was something that was gradual. So let me get back to the frog. There's a a fable, um, a story. It's not scientifically proven. But the the story goes this. If you take a frog and you throw it into a pot of boiling water, the frog will jump out of the pot. Um, Now, some will argue the frog may not actually be able to get out of the pot. It'll flail around, but eventually the, the water temperature would kill it. So, but for the sake of the story, you know, you throw the frog into the boiling pot of water, it would jump out. But if you take a frog and you put it in a tepid, um, you know, pot of water, the frog will not jump out because it's comfortable. And then if you take and you turn up the stove and you turn it just so that it slowly begins to heat the water, the frog will stay in the pot because it's unable to discern that the temperature is actually increasing. Now, I know there's a lot wrong with that, but work with me because here's what I'm really saying is that as people, we, um, we struggle to realize insidious Threats. And the word insidious, it just means that it's a little bit at a time. It's gradual. And so when when threats happen in a in a in a in a small incremental way, often we don't comprehend those things. First Peter five, eight. Says your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And you might say, "Well, I don't, I don't hear any lions roaring." Okay, and and the 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 Bible uses um, this description of the enemy, and it, it says that the devil is like. He's like a roaring lion. And what that lion does is it prowls. And the word prowl refers to uh, being stealthy. And the enemy of our souls is stealthy. The Bible says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, he wants to appear to you and to me as something that he is not. He wants to appear good. He wants to appear even godly as if he is of God. He he wants to come across as, as being of God. And the Bible says that when he speaks lies, he is speaking his native language. Every time the devil opens up his mouth, it is a lie. He does not, in fact, the truth, the Bible says, is not in him. One author that I read said, Lucifer is the master at gradual deception. And we're in the pot. (laughs) And we need to not be that frog. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul says this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan wants to blind us so that we cannot see. He wants to desensitize us so that we don't feel when the heat is turned up on us. He wants us to not be aware of that. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He he said this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Why? Because we can't detect that we're on the road to hell. We just think we're, we're walking along. But I want you to know that Satan's probably not going to attack you head on. It's going to be a gradual thing. You know, they, there's a, a, a thing that pastors say, a question that they ask. How do you move a church organ? We don't have these same problems today today. Um, you know, we, we changed the keyboard out from last Sunday and nobody came up and said, I'm leaving the church because, you know, because the, the keyboard was moved. But, but, you know, in the old days in the church, boy, if you move the church organ, people would come right unglued. So how do you move the church organ? And the answer is an inch a week. Because nobody's going to recognize it and nobody's going to think about well it's an inch that's, it's not enough to detect in between that t- you just you just wouldn't come back and say oh i think that's been moved an inch now maybe if you're an engineer maybe if you put tape on the platform where stuff belongs which we do <laughs> those things but but if you move it just a little tiny bit nobody's going to nobody's going to notice and what's more nobody's going to care because it's it's just an inch well i want to encourage you because because the Hebrews went from the best to the oppressed. It didn't happen overnight. It happened a degree at a time. It happened an inch at a time. And in our lives, the enemy is going to come after us, but he's not going to do so necessarily with a frontal attack. He's going to do it incrementally. He's going to do it in very small steps. So we need strategic negotiation. Now the word strategic—it's it's big picture of military operations. Um, it's something that's needed in order to meet the military objectives. But you also need tactics, short term battlefield decisions. Um, I did some some reading on um, hostage negotiations. There's five tactics used in hostage negotiations that I, I found really interesting. One is called active listening. In other words, you make them aware that you're hearing them. They, they want to know. Um, someone that's taken a hostage, they want to know that they're being heard. Next is empathy. If we grasp how they feel. And then that develops rapport um, when they they feel like we get it, like we understand them, and that begins to build trust. Then there's influence where you earn the right to solve a problem, and then there's behavioral change finally, which is that That person who has has taken a hostage, they begin to act on your ideas. Say, well, why do you mention that? I mentioned it because this in hostage negotiation situations, the success rate is ninety-five percent. And it's ninety-five percent because the negotiator understands the individual. He understands the situation. He or she understands uh, what that person wants to accomplish. And in John chapter 10 and verse 10, scripture tells us what the enemy is trying to accomplish when it says the thief comes to only, only, only. It's not just that he comes. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So we're told what the the enemy's uh, ultimate goal is. And he wants to do those things to us. He wants to do them to our family. He wants to do them to our health. He wants to do it to our abilities. He wants to do it to our resources, to our jobs. He wants to do it to our all that is encompassed in our lives. And the question is, how can you negotiate with someone that wants to kill you, that wants to destroy you, that wants to take everything that you have and he is so patient that he is willing to do it a degree at a time. He's willing to move that organ an inch at a time. He is so patient because he's playing the long game. But his goal is to kill us, to kill our families, to, to, to destroy us. So, but when he comes after you, he's, he's not going to say to you, you know, you just need to reject God we're we're probably not going to wake up one morning and feel like we've got to reject god but you know what you might wake up one morning and think i really don't need to take any time to read my bible today i'm so busy i really i you know I, i'll be okay you know i can i can i can catch you know, I can catch somebody on the radio on my way to work. I could, I could even listen to a podcast. You know, I've got the Bible app on, on my phone, and undoubtedly a scripture of the day is going to come up today. So I'll, I'll at least, I'll get something. When we, when we succumb to the, that sort of thinking, we are losing the negotiation. We're negotiating with the enemy, and we're losing Moses said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. God came back and said, well, then I'm going to bring a plague on the people. After the plague, Pharaoh said, please, please take it away, and then I'll let your people go. Moses said, okay, I'll take it away. And it was back and forth. Now, now God had a purpose. God had a plan, and his plan was going to happen. But sometimes our life is like that relationship between Pharaoh and Moses and we are back and forth when when we're we're negotiating with the enemy of our souls. Exodus chapter 10, verse 20, it says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. It's impossible to, to negotiate with someone whose heart is that hard. Or in our case, we can't negotiate with the enemy because everything that he says is a lie, and everything that he wants to do is to destroy us. When I listen to the news and I hear about some of the negotiations in the Middle East, and I hear people say that their goal is to destroy Israel. They enter into negotiations with that as their goal. How do you negotiate with that? You can't do it because there's no there's no compromise. So as we, as we continue to look at this, I, I think of when we're riding in the car with our kids, and we, our kids always say, Are we there yet? Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1 is where the sentence for our our series is found, let my people go. When when Moses said that, and and God had told him what to say, let my people go, Pharaoh's response was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? In fact, he said, get back to work. (laughs) Get back to work. So Pharaoh obviously rejected this. Look at Exodus chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. That same day after this conversation, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce that quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. I want to remind you of what Pharaoh said. In Exodus chapter 1, which I read at the beginning of my message, he said the people of Israel are too numerous for us. We need to deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave this country. And you know what that does? That screams to me that the enemy is afraid. Pharaoh was afraid. And I believe that Satan is afraid. He's afraid that you are going to wake up. He's afraid that you're going to stop believing his lies. You say, what, what lies are the, is the enemy talking to me about? Is he telling me? Well, look at, look at what, what I read from Exodus 5. He said, tell them they got to they gotta get their own straw tell them the quota hasn't changed. So they're going out. Not only are they making bricks they're now they got to, they got to figure out where there is straw. Now here's the thing about, about this problem. So on Monday they go out and they get straw that's kind of around the house to make their bricks. But where are they going to go Tuesday? Because the same straw that was there on Monday is not there on Tuesday. They got to go farther. And then on Wednesday, where do they go? They've got to go farther. The Bible says they literally went throughout the entire land looking for straw to make bricks and that they had to continue to make their quota. They were focused every day on how many bricks they had to make, where the straw comes from, and am I going to make the quota? That was the lie that the enemy had spoken to them. They were focused on bricks rather than on promises. It's, it's like our kids. Are we, are we mom and dad? Are we there yet? And, and all they're focusing on is, are we there yet? You know, those of us that drive, we have to focus on the. Uh, we have to focus on what road we're on. We have to focus on the gas gauge. We've got to focus on, you know, are there bathroom stops that have to be made? We're looking at all of these other things, and then we know we're going to get to our destination. But obviously, our kids are not thinking that way. Israel, their attention is being focused on the bricks and the straw and the quota, rather than the promise that God has made and I want to just go through because we don't think of this we've got to go all the way back to Abraham Genesis chapter 12 verse 7 says the Lord appeared to Abram that was his name before God changed it to Abraham he said to you and your your offspring I will give this land the same promises then made to Isaac and to Jacob in Exodus 23 verse 13 Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then Joseph comes on the scene in Egypt, and what does he do? He reminds the people about God's promise. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, it says, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Moses comes on the scene and God reaffirms this promise to Moses in Exodus 3, 8, where he said, so I have come down to rescue you from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up up out of the land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. And you say, how long did this take? We're talking about a thousand year timeline here. This is not something that happened two weeks ago. We get so caught up in the here and the now and looking at the bricks and looking at the straw and looking at the quota, that we can't see the promises of God which have come down through the ages that apply to us. Acts chapter 2 and verse 39 says, The promise, this promise is for you and your children, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So, we ask ourselves this question, and I'm gonna have the worship team come as I close. Why would God allow Pharaoh to enslave Egypt? Or to enslave Israel? Why would God allow that to happen? Because there's there's something, you know, you think, well, couldn't he have just have avoided this? Why did God allow this to happen in the first place? And my response is if if um if, if God had not allowed that to happen, would Israel ever have left Egypt? I, I don't think they would have. I think if you're in the best of the land, if, if you're, just ha- you're just having a great time, why leave? Why leave? They obviously had forgotten the promises of God. Why leave? Why worry about a promised land that's somewhere else when we're in the best that Egypt has to offer? Why, why leave in the first place? God's plan was not for them to stay in Egypt where they were at that moment in slavery where they were. And it wasn't, it, the slavery was simply part of the tool to get them out of there. Don't be that frog. Don't allow the enemy to turn up the heat in your life one degree at a time without recognizing who the source of that heat is. Don't don't allow him to to to, um, to 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 come at you and move things just an inch at a time. Stop negotiating with the enemy and remember God's promises. Psalm one hundred five. It says that God keeps His promises for a thousand generations. A thousand generations. Second Peter. Chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. I love what Isaiah says in chapter 43, verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, they will, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And then in chapter 40, verse 31, but those who hope in the Lord are those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God has promises for you, for your life, for your health. He has promises for your abilities. He has promises for your children and grandchildren. And God has the ability to fulfill those prophecies, Promises. But we, like the children of Israel, we are focusing on the bricks. We're focusing on the straw. We're stressed out about the quota rather than God you've promised. And to stand on that promise and to believe that God is going to do what he's promised to do. In just a moment, I'm going to have the worship team sing that song that we sang just a little bit ago about victory. And I want to just invite you to stand with me as we close our service. And as we sing this song together, in just a moment, we're going to pray together. And what I want you to do is to to really... Come to a, a point where you're going to say, yep, you know what I need? I need victory in my life. I need victory in my family. I need victory in my health. I need victory in my abilities. Maybe you need victory in your job. Maybe you need victory in your finances, but you've been focusing at the br- on the bricks. You've been focusing on the straw. You've been focusing on the quota rather than on the promises of God. And this song is a song about victory. God is going to produce victory, but we've got to begin to focus on the promises of God. So would you bow your heads for a moment? And you say, Pastor, you know what? There's some victory that I need in my life or my family or my circumstance or my situation. And, and I, it's time to say, God, let my people go. It's time It's time for me to stop negotiating with the enemy. It's time for me to stop focusing on the bricks and on the straw and on the, the quota. And it's time for me to start focusing on the promises of God. And I want God to put that in my heart. I want to see a victory. If that's you, just slip your hand up for just a second. Yes, yes, yes. Father, I pray that as we begin to worship, as we sing this song one more time, I pray, Father, that you'll begin to move by your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Let's worship together. I'll come back and close us in prayer, but... If you'd like to come to the altar, I want you to feel free to do that while the song is playing and we'll close in prayer at the end of our time together. But Marie, would you lead us? Father, I pray that indeed, you will take what the enemy has meant for evil and you'll use it for good. Father, that even the words of that song are from Joseph's life as he talked to his brothers about how they had sold him into slavery. And Father, I know that in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our jobs, in our, in, in, in our relationships, Lord, there are things that we look at and we say, man, I don't, I don't know if I can make it through this. And we see that the enemy has turned up the heat on our lives and maybe we're not recognizing it because it's just been a degree at a time and now we find ourselves in this mess. Father, I just pray right now for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon our hearts and our minds, to open our eyes that we would realize that God has brought us through this for our own good. Father, I pray that indeed we would see a victory, a victory in our hearts and lives, a victory in our family, a victory in our health, a victory in our finances, a victory in our relationships, in our marriage, with our children, with our grandchildren. Father, I pray that we would see a victory. God, we thank you. We love you. We worship you.